and welcome to the other side of midnight. I'm going to be your host tonight because Richard's having power problems because they've got serious thunderstorms going on. Uh, Kanthea will be my co-host, and we're going to have a good show, I hope, uh, because we're going to be talking with Dr. John Brandenburg and Dr. Mark Carlotto. Um, and we're going to be talking about the uh, the latest things going on with the Ooh, with uh, John Brandenburg's discovery about the uh, Mars and the uh, isotope that is only formed during atomic explosions. And um, I think we're going to have a good time. So I'm going to hand this over to my co-host, uh, Kanthea. She's going to read off their bios. And and uh, hopefully if Richard's power comes back, he'll come join us. So Kanthea, uh, would you like to step in? No, I'm happy to. So good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm very happy and excited to welcome back our guests, Mark, Dr. Mark Carlotto and Dr. John Brandenburg. I first met Mark in the early days of research. Uh, Mark Carlotto is an engineer, scientist, and author with almost 40 years of experience in satellite imaging, remote sensing, image processing, and pattern recognition. He received a PhD in electrical engineering from Carnegie Mellon University and has written over 100 technical papers and seven books. Outside of his occupation as an engineer in the aerospace industry, his journey as an independent scientist has taken him to Mars and back again by way of planetary mysteries, UFOs, local history, and more recently, ancient origins and archaeology on our planet. And you can find out more about his work on beforeatlantis, all one word, dot com, beforeatlantis.com. Welcome to the show, Mark. So great to have you with us. Yeah, I know. This is like a reunion. (laughs) Oh, I'm really happy about this. (laughs) And our other guest tonight is Dr. John E. Brandenburg. He is a theoretical plasma physicist who's obtained his Ph.D. in plasma physics from the University of California at Davis. He's presently working on plasmas for controlled fusion and directed energy weapons. He's authored many science books, including Death on Mars, Life and Death on Mars, Beyond Einstein's Unified Field, Dead Mars, Dying Earth, and more. He's also uh, received awards, and he's written a couple of science fiction novels under the pen name of Victor Norgard. So... And you can find out more about uh, Dr. Brandenburg's work on lifeonmars.pub, P-U-B. Welcome to the show, John. So good to have you with us tonight. It's a pleasure to be here, Kentia. And and Mark, always great to be on the show with you. Yes, and I want to let... Yeah, welcome, welcome. And I want to let our audience know you'll find much more detailed bios on the show page. So I'm going to turn this back to Keith 
And uh, I'm so excited to see how the conversation will flow tonight. I also want to let everyone know we will be joined by other researchers, including Ron Gibran, Timothy Saunders, uh, of course, myself, Robert Morningstar. And take it away, Keith. (laughs) Okay. So, Dr. Brandenburg. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading your paper earlier. And the whole concept is that there was a nuclear holocaust that took place on Mars, which less left yeah, the, so. yeah, it left an isotope that's only created during an atomic uh, explosion or reaction. And it's rare that that could even happen. But it, you said it encompasses most of the planet? Oh, oh yeah. It's... Um... Mars is very distinct in isotopes from the rest of the planets in the solar system and the solar wind. And, you know, Earth and Jupiter have very similar isotopes, but Mars sticks out like a sore thumb. And if you grind up, you know, meteorites and extract all the gases from them, especially the noble gases, they have a certain isotopic distribution. And Mars is very different from them. They all look Everything looks pretty much the same in the solar system except Mars. And Mars has an excess of a isotope called xenon-129, and it's a result of what's called R process, which occurs in only two known places, supernovas, you know, exploding stars, or in hydrogen bombs. And we know there was no supernova on Mars. Um, the Xenon-129 appeared recently in geologic time on Mars about half a billion years ago. And along with other isotopes associated with neutron bombardment of the surface. And uh, basically something happened in recent geologic time. In this case, about half a billion years ago. And that's just a rough estimate, by the way. Did you say None a, of these things can be done exactly right now, but... Did you say a half a million or half a billion? Half a billion, half a billion. Okay. And um, basically, that uh, it took a planet that looked a lot like Earth and turned it into what Mars looks like right now. The energy release was so enormous. It was roughly 10 times greater than the uh, explosion that wiped out the dinosaurs and the Chicxulub asteroid hit. Mm -hmm. And this happened on a planet only half the size of Earth. So it basically blew off most of the Martian atmosphere. And uh, Mars used to have an ocean, rivers, an oxygen atmosphere. That's why its surface is bright red, because of oxidized iron. If you look at pictures of Earth, of the Sahara Desert, or the Arabian Desert, or even Australia, you'll see vast red areas. It looks just like Mars. That's because we have iron in our soil, just like on Mars, and it turns rust red when it's in the presence of oxygen. So, um, And this isotope couldn't, be, couldn't uh, be created by, say, two planetary bodies and colliding or something like that? Well, 
if that was true, uh, Mars would not look like it looks. It looks like it's a. Uh, uh, we, we know that, you know, and Mark can speak to this. The is- history of Earth is a lot more colorful than people have made it out to be. Actually, um, you know, Earth collided. The proto-Earth collided with another body about the size of Mars, and the, then they resulting body colliding bodies merged but with some leftovers that became the moon so that's why the moon is so big relative to the earth it's much bigger than any other moon in the solar system relative to the planet it orbits mars has two moons but they look like just little asteroids circling mars uh but um basic basically there is no known, no known process other than a hydrogen bomb or a supernova that could have caused this pattern of isotopes on Mars. They landed on Mars and discovered the xenon-129 excess. Mm-hmm. Most everything else in the solar system, xenon-129 is equal to another isotope called xenon-132. The two are almost always equal. Uh, But on Mars, there's two and a half times more xenon-129 than there is 132. It sticks out like a sore thumb. And they detected this when they landed the Viking landers on Mars and sampled the atmosphere at two different places on Mars. They found it at two different places. The instruments were very good. And um, it's been a half century since they made that measurement, and they can't explain it. Uh, there was an, uh, some people talking about it 20 years after the uh, Viking landings in 1976. So they were talking about in 97. And they said, that ah, we can't figure it out. And then most recently, they have probes sampling the atmosphere all over again. And they called it a mystery why the Xenon-129 is so abundant on Mars. But as I said, I found in the open literature that it is the product of what's called R-process. You can look it up on Wikipedia. R-process occurs in supernova and um, nuclear weapons. Um, The Wikipedia page third paragraph down the only reason i i was asking the question was because um the you've heard of the lost book inky and the sumerian translation of the tablets that uh, let's see zacharias stitch and yeah, the others have translated keith i i'm i'm very aware of these things but i haven't been able to study them mark could speak to this better because he has been looking at past of you know hidden past civilizations on on earth which and i believe he's found substantial evidence for that okay. uh i can't unfortunately speak to it i'm i'm just a rocket scientist Keith. yeah <laughs> I, I can't and john, I, hey, Ethan, john can i i i, I want to ask a question to john along along this line um sure you know i 
Hey, John, a great paper. Um, you know, I read an early version of this uh, a few years ago, and I reread your latest paper. And um, I mean, I, I, I could talk to you for probably three hours about it. Um, but, great scientist uh, to scientist, nerd to nerd. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the question I, I had is, um, you know, you, you have some calculations in there on uh energy yield and yeah. um and actually a very interesting number on the amount yeah and, and a very interesting number on the amount of, of ejecta uh you know how much material on average would have been deposited on the surface uh yeah. as a result yeah actually but, that, uh, was, that was please leave your message for excuse me sorry about dennis elvin Sorry about that. Um, one of our guests is uh, not at his phone. So let me uh, square that away real quick. So that stops messing with us. <laughs> and he's calling me, obviously. Oh, I just. Okay, guys, go ahead and continue. Hey, so, okay, so, John, I, I want to talk about the ejecta stuff. But the question I wanted to ask uh, when, you know, Keith was asking you about uh, started off, you know, asking you about this is how much uh, nuclear material would it take for this to uh, I mean, how much based on the yield on the energy yield, how much nuclear material was involved? Hey there. Keith? Sorry about that, Kanthea. Um, yeah. Actually, so, are we back on the show now? Yeah, we're. Everybody's here. Okay. I think Mark asked a question and it didn't come through. Okay, you called me on our individual line, so. Oh, we lost John. Oh, good grief. Mark asked a question about the ejecta of uh, John Brandenburg. Maybe you need to get John back. Yeah, we lost it. We yeah, lost his I'll phone wait, I'll, connection. I'll wait for John. Yeah, I'll wait for John. In the meantime, uh, just to fill in. John, uh, you back? Is he back? Okay, he's back, I think. No, that's Ron. That's you know, Ron is already on the another okay, four, line. Three, two. I think I think that's John Brandenburg. No, that's that yeah, that's John on the fourth. That number for three. Is it John or Ron? Am I speaking to? Huh? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Uh, Mark, just to address your question, the the results you're talking about was a, a, a study of how much ejecta a Chicxulub-like impact would have on a planet like Earth, and you know what the ejecta blanket would be like. But these these Hello, explosions Keith. did not occur on the surface. They were air bursts. Right. Right. Like so with that unfortunately like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I mean, this does not look natural at all. So when it made so John, laugh. Uh, so John yeah. with the even even if it were an airburst, would there be uh, would it affected the surface and created um, you know disruption of the surface, you know, lifting material up and you know at that time having an atmosphere, having that material be transported, carried around the planet and deposited uh, uh, oh, yes, as a layer of ash, you know, as yes, a layer of, of degree, you know, yes. basically fallout. 
I guess. Yeah, it, there is evidence of um, on the far side of the planet, uh, allowing, of course, that the bottom half of the planet is much higher by about two or three kilometers in average elevation than the north of the planet. So it would affect the, how the shock waves propagate. But it looks like the shock waves went around the planet from these two explosions, which we know from the radioactive hotspots on the surface of Mars in uh, radioactive potassium and thorium. And it looks like the shock waves came around and met on the far side of the planet and deposited a bunch of radioactive material. So um, there's also glass deposits, you know, where are called trinitite. When they set off the first atomic bomb, they it turned um, a lot of the desert sand to glass, greenish glass. And this right. glass on Mars is etched with apparently nitric acid, which is another product of enormous uh, fireball, nuclear fireballs. But it doesn't seem to have, it doesn't seem to have dug a crater at either site. It's just very smooth. There's nothing there except a hot spot of, a relative hot spot of radioactivity. Most of the radioactivity is gone now, but, but it, you know, there's to these two hot spots in the north and then um, a what looks like an antipode, uh, you know, a far side uh, convergence of shock waves on the south of Mars. Uh, so it did li apparently lift up a lot of debris. And, and I have to say it, the, the most biggest concentration of glass indicating this explosion, of course, in the center of it is this radioactive hotspot, is right next to Cydonia Mensa. Right, John, right. John, this is Robert Morningstar. I have a question. You said there were two airbursts over Mars that created uh, this cataclysm. Did those occur yeah. over Arabia and Utopia? Yes, uh, Cydonia, uh, well, it's Acidalia Planitia and uh, what's called uh, Utopia Planitia, but they're correlated with two of the sites of what look like archaeology. One at site, the, the one in Acidalia is right next to, it's, it's to the, you know, it's up, upwind, if you calculate the prevailing winds on Mars, it's about 100 miles upwind, so all of the fallout and shock waves would have been concentrated towards Cydonia Mensa. And then on the other side of the planet, uh, there's a smaller, slightly smaller hotspot. Once again, it's just flat in the place right. where the radiation is concentrated and the glass is concentrated there, too. And there's nothing there. There's no volcanoes. There's no craters. There's nothing. It's, so that's why I concluded these had to have been airbursts like at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, unfortunately. And, uh, and um, yeah, it, it's Robert Morningstar, right? Yes. I think uh, we've that, talked before. Yes, and, we have. Uh, yeah. I, the, reason I asked, the reason I asked is that I've, I've studied Mars, and Utopia looks totally denuded, and Arabia, a very nondescript terrain, whereas the sides that we know, uh, Olympus, uh, Tarsus Monte, Sidonia, Valles Marineris, has a lot of yeah. surface features. 
but uh, a big eraser was taken to Utopia and Arabia. Yeah, yeah. Well, the 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 region. There's what looks like a what used to be a paleo ocean on Mars, and it was discovered by myself. And I was the first one to announce it. And it's you can check Wikipedia. It's I'm reference number one, and uh, at least they're honest about it. And it's a deep, um, you know, the the elevation drops down into this kind of trough where the ocean used to be next to Sidonia Menza, and um, in the middle of that is this concentration of radioactivity and around it is all this glass. It's been etched by apparently nitric acid. So it's, um, so it looks, given, pretty, it looks like a pretty strong case actually. Um, was, what I'm proposing is that, that it happened. I was trying to get a, a, a handle on the timeline um, because yes, according to uh, what Richard had calculated with the, the way Sidonia the complex was set up, that you could stand in the center of the uh, city square and look back out over the face and you'd have an Earth sunrise coming up there at about uh, 500,000 years ago. And, yeah. and according to the Lost Book of Inky, um, they came here uh, 450,000 years ago and at the time they said they had to land on Mars to refuel because their firestones, the engines that ran their celestial chariots mm -hmm. ran, ran off of water and they didn't have enough water after using water cannons to get through the asteroid field by pushing the asteroids aside but they had enough to land on Mars and refuel from the rivers and lakes that were there so I'm trying to get a handle on the, the timing because if Richard calculated that Sidonia was built around 450,000 years or 500,000 years ago, uh, so that the the Earth sunrise or Earth rise uh, would appear um, right over the face, standing in the city square, um, I'm trying to figure out when this actually could have occurred. Because in the Lost Book of Inky, he said that the younger generation didn't understand what was going on and they rebelled and they found the weapons of terror. That, Sounds pretty standard. Yeah, that <laughs> that Alalu had on his craft and they used them against one another in a war. And uh, yeah. if they had detonated those on Mars, um, then yeah, I could understand maybe that kind of stuff happening. But that would have been... That would have been maybe eight, nine thousand years ago, or maybe seven thousand years ago. Yeah, well, there's, you know, I think Mark can speak to fairly recent activity on Earth. Uh, you know, the, the the number I came up with is only approximate for about half a billion years. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I will make a confession. I don't know what happened there. And I don't know exactly when it happened. Uh, we have some idea where it happened. But um, my estimates for age of the explosions are very, you know, 
approximate in human terms. And um, I don't know, as soon, Keith, as soon as you involve intelligent beings, the number of scenarios you can come up with just becomes like the stars of the sky. Yeah, I understand. Mark, Mark can speak to the more recent things that may have involved Mars. Mars is still, even if Mars was devastated by this half a billion years ago, it's still a very user-friendly place. There's still plenty of water. They actually had a meteorite plow into Mars basically while we were watching it, and it blew these big chunks of ice out of the soil. They're just sitting there. So the water is frozen underground. So it, uh, it, Mars is a very convenient place to get get water and that you can use as rocket fuel and also to sustain life. And uh, so Mars is a very convenient place, especially if you're focusing in on Earth, you want a forward base. But then, as I said, Mark can speak more to possible ET or some kind of advanced civilization that existed far before for anyone in, uh, you know, mainstream archaeology believes they uh, occurred. Okay, Mark, um, do you have any uh, comments on that? You know, I, 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 I actually want to take this opportunity to pick John's brain because we don't have, we don't often do this, John, <laughs> for this call. And, you know, sure. uh, you know, way back when, right, they, they, the uh, planetary science community was saying, well, this, the, the phase can't be there because it, it would, it'd have to be billions of years old. You know, this was based on all the old crater uh, statistics, right? I which, know. You always, yeah. which, which you always, you always said uh, is different at Mars than uh, at the moon because of its proximity to the asteroid belt. So it, it my, seems kind of obvious, and other people have said this too. Right. So, so given okay. So now, given you, the the nuclear hypothesis, the R process, the R process hypothesis, mm-hmm. can that provide a way of of coming up with a new calibration curve for uh, the cratering rates at Mars? Well, actually, we don't really even need that. Because we have a number of, we have more than a, gosh, approaching 200 meteorites from Mars now. Almost all of them, if you if you just average their ages, you come up with about half a billion years old as the average age, at least for the north of Mars. The southern half of Mars, very heavily cratered. It looks like this island's on the moon. And... If you ask me why why are they keep insisting that the cratering rate on Mars is the same as the moon when it's it's obviously not and it's for the same reason they keep insisting that the Mars sky is red it's 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 just become a a doctrine yeah I yeah. talked to one of the other scientists who had basically proven that, you know, 
uh, Mars surface age is got to be something like an average of the meteorites that we're getting from its surface. And that's about half a billion years old. So he says, just raise the cratering rate to like four times what it is at the moon and you get, and it all works. And he said, and I keep presenting papers at conferences and publishing papers and no one pays any attention, he says. <laughs> yeah, that's not surprising. Okay, guys, we're about well, a minute out from the... This way. If, 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 Mark, let me put it this way. Here's the scandal. If the surface of Mars is much younger than it looks based on lunar crater counting, and, and when the astronauts from Mars, from the moon, brought back rocks, and they could correlate that with the pictures, so they got a this many craters per square mile equals this age because they could have the rocks and they had the pictures. Okay, then they just applied this blindly to Mars. And, and, but the thing is, is on Mars, you have all these water channels in the rock. And if Mars' surface is young, then it means all the water channels are young too. Right. Okay, right. guys, uh, we're at the bottom of the hour. Like climate up until yeah, guys, recent we're... geologic times, like half a billion years ago. That's considered recent geologic times. Okay, guys, we're at the bottom of the hour. Uh, I have to start my break. Uh, you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. And when we return, we're going to pick up where John left off. Um, we're talking about... Uh, the radioactive isotopes found on Mars that indicate that it was a, a nuclear catastrophe that took place. And with that, um, we'll be right back. Side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
Welcome back to the other side of midnight. Um, conversation's been pretty good here. Uh, there's uh, things that uh, kind of conflict with some of the things that are, I think I knew. And I'm just trying to get a little handle on it. But John is saying that this, was, this took place uh, half a billion years ago. Uh, but yet the Lost Book of Inky says... Um, there was water and rivers and lakes 450,000 years ago. So I was just trying to wonder how that worked out. So, John. Well, it's, it's, it's quite possible that there was 450,000 years ago on Mars. I mean, there was an ocean. And the ocean bed is not on the old part of Mars, which is the south. It's on the young part of Mars. There are hardly any craters. And, and you know... So it's like uh, some young person trying to uh, explain that they're nearly 30 when you find their license, license uh, driver's license, and it says they're only 17. <laughs> okay. Hey, John, I have another question. I have another question regarding the radiation. If the yes. radiation is uh, highly concentrated and there's so much so many radioactive isotopes, how likely is it possible that it's possible to colonize Mars? Are there more, less, uh, let's say, a Sidonia, a better prospect for landing and colonization than uh, Utopia and Acelia? How, how dense oh, is the radiation? Oh, yes, Bob, very good question. The, the radiation, remember, because of the Cold War, we got very, very good at detecting radiation and identifying isotopes by their gamma ray spectrum. Uh, and because of the Cold War and everything was so nuclear then, uh, the actual levels of radiation on Mars are higher than Earth, but that's because Earth, uh, Mars doesn't have a magnetic field like the Earth, at least not a global one. And so I don't think that these when I say they're radioactive hotspots, I only mean that in a very relative sense. They stick out like sore thumbs because the instruments are so sensitive. But you could probably walk around on them for a year and not suffer any ill effects. I wouldn't well, advise it. But <laughs> Well, thank you. That's, that's a question that's been uh, on my mind for quite a long time. Very hey, good. Thank Go ahead, Mark. Hey, guys. Anybody hear me? Yeah, Ron. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he just faded out, Ron. Okay, Ron. You're, you are oh. faded so far away that you're, we're not hearing you. Okay, let's pick up... Um, Hey, hey, uh, hey, uh, Keith. I cannot, you know, I, I didn't mean to uh, not answer. You asked me a question before, and I, and I, I wanted to ask uh, John something, but I wanted, I would like to get back to answering your question or the one that John. Yes, please, Mark. Asked. Answer the answer uh, Keith's question because I think it it really ties in with with what John's discovered here. Um, you know, um, if you look at the at um, at religious texts, in particular the Eastern uh, traditions, the the, uh, the Vedas and the Yuga cycles, um, yes. these are periods. These are periods of incredibly 
you know, lo incredibly long periods of times, uh, millions of years. And um, the uh, Mandatara, which is a one of these cycles, is 71 yuga cycles. A yuga cycle is... Um, is 1,728,000 years. So 71 of these is 306,720,000 years. What's interesting is this gets us into the ballpark of, of, yes, this, it does. of this frame on Mars. And, yes, you're, you know, in my, in, in my area of interest on Earth has been trying to push back our history beyond 10,000 B.C., uh, to earlier times that begin to perhaps connect up with older traditions, uh, mythological traditions and uh, religious traditions, for example. And, you know, I think perhaps this, you know, this, this, these dates that John's come up with is a way of maybe finding some common ground between Earth and Mars. It's something that we've been looking for in a, in a plausible way without stretching, you know, the history, the facts, the science, whatever, but coming up with something that sort of matches the data we have uh, with some, you know, a little bit of wiggle room based on, you know, myth and, and ancient legends. Um, and I think this is a really cool area of research um, that it really brings, you know, Ooh, it perhaps is. It together is. in a new way. I'd, I'd <laughs> like to, to hear if you have a tentative time, time date for you know, the Mahandodaro place where they found, uh, I guess, uh, Trinitite and also all these unburied bodies that were just. Mahandodaro is rather recent compared to. Yeah. All of the, uh, it, it happened, it, it dates back to the uh, middle of the last ice age, which is about maybe 20,000 years ago, 25. Right. Okay. Right. Well, that's still certainly earlier than. Most people, I mean, I, I remember poor uh, Bill, I think it's William Shock dating the Sphinx to 10,000 years, and everybody said, oh, this is heresy. This is, he should be taken out of the city gates and stoned to death. And, uh, you know, and it turns out he's right. Well, it's conservative. <laughs> it's, it's about 14,000 as far as I can what's, tell. What's interesting about sure. the, the what's, what's interesting about the Indus Valley sites is that uh, a lot of them uh, are uh, the current, you know, what's above ground is built over more ancient foundations. And that yeah. some of these sites have not have not hit bottom. In other words, they haven't found the bottom. So there's really no. Uh, no way of really truly dating these sites. Um, yeah, and, and that's a, and that's it, a common problem in archaeology. Uh, in 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 um, in Beyond Atlantis, a uh, book I published last year, I look at about twenty different air, uh, regions uh, in the world, and I look at the alignments of sites. And uh, the the whole my 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 uh, hypothesis is that. Um, uh, a lot of sites that cannot be explained in terms of their geometry, their alignment, um, uh, actually are consistent with a what I call a shifted pole uh, model, which is that the geographical poles sure. have shifted shifted mm -hmm. along the lines that Hapgood proposed back in the fifties. Based on that, based on that model, based on that model. Mahendra Darrow and other uh, Harappan uh, and and uh, and other Indus Valley Indus Valley sites would be uh, 
you know, tens of thousands of years old, not not thousands, but tens of thousands of years old. Okay, so that, that seems very reasonable. So much, yeah, I mean, so yeah, you, you're you're talking about an event that was, you know, uh, a couple hundred million years ago. Yeah, so. But yeah, but I'm, I'm going to recommend, by the way, that uh, any ast the astronauts we send to Mars be sent to places like Pompeii and Mahindo Daro to see what it looks like to be on the site of mass death, you know, complete with uh, bodies, um, you know, imprints of bodies and, and uh, things like that, uh, just to right. be acclimated, because that's, I believe that's what we're going to find on Mars, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, we... we I'm just trying to look at the time frames of um so we we have a wide range of what we can look at right now. Um Yes. Okay. But that makes sense. Have they have they got a date on the, the settlements in Zimbabwe? Have, have they got any kind of date for that? 11 to 14,000. Oh, okay. Are you talking okay. about, so you talking about the Homo Naledi stuff? Are you talking about Homo Naledi, the stuff in South Africa? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, uh, Brennan has it at about eleven to fourteen. That's pretty wide range, but at least he, at least somebody there has the at Stellenbosch has the courage to actually give it a number. Uh, but they're not sure. They just. Uh, but they did find some well because South Africa, you know, has all these minerals, especially gold. And if if there were some ETs, I mean, I I write science fiction, so I have this situation where these people are trying to get help from these other aliens, and they offer them galactic credits, and the aliens say, "You got any gold?" <laughs> and one of them is a human woman, you know, and she says, you guys use gold? And he says, yeah. <laughs> and it turns out gold is not only shiny, but it's also got only one isotope. And that means it can't be traced. Hmm. Gold from the Andromeda galaxy, from Alpha Centauri, from, from Earth, from Mars, it all is the same. You can't trace it. Silver, on the other hand, you give somebody gives you a, a silver coin, you can actually trace where on Earth it came from, assuming it hasn't been tampered with, because it's a gold. Silver is a mixture of isotopes. With gold, one isotope. It's re, it's one. It's actually a rather unique element that way. Yeah, In but it's never a hundred percent, is it? Oh gold. no, no, no. Yeah, so I you, mean, you, if you, know, it, you can go to a jeweler and they. Percent. Yeah, you can. Yeah, that's which is usually impractical. And a hundred percent gold is uh, a little too soft. But well, uh, there's other things you can mix with it. They're actually single isotopes too. I, I actually looked into that. Uh oh. Okay. What happened? Uh, that's sorry. That was my. I didn't mute my sounds for my system, so that you're hearing my email Ooh, you sounds. Playing the piano. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, apparently, uh, apparently it can be heard anyway. That's something. <laughs> the uh, I had something to say about those gullies on Mars. All the evidence of water. Yes. 
Uh, it conflicts yeah. with the fact that it's a very commonly pitched story lately. I just read something the other day from NASA again, uh, talking about the uh, eons of dust that is piled up on top of everything. Well, yeah, they they would have filled those in. They're not that old. They're not, and this half a billion years stuff is because they had this older model based on solar system hijinks, planets busting yes. into each other and so forth, and they they can't get out of it. It's kind of like they got stuck with the uh, no explanation for the blue skies <laughs> until recently when they just suddenly walked away from it. It was just like a year I, or so. I ago. know. I, 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 in my science fiction, I have this man and woman crash on Mars. They're one of the first people who actually end up on Mars is by accident. And they open the cockpit of their thing to be able to see because it's covered with red dust. Right. And they want to look around. And this woman screams out, oh, my God, look at the sky. And it's blue. <laughs> and she says, the UFO cover-up has been over for 10 years, but the Mars cover-up continues forever <laughs> that's the trouble with lies that's brilliant that's the trouble with lies they never know when or how to get out of them when they have to you know they're like, oh i know they're it's, like flypaper uh, they are they're you know well it mars sky is red because we say it is and you say well how come the hubble pictures show a nice blue sheen around mars you know, like everywhere you know, else, basically. Like everywhere else, like Earth, and they say, "Well, that's that's because they didn't get the memo." <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree there. Yeah. Oh well, you got to have a sense of humor about this stuff. I mean, it's they're trying to protect the fact that Mars was a living planet in the past, and they. I got an article. You know, I've submitted several articles to, about Mars, including this one, to journals, and one of the journals rejected it. And this guy says, because I had circumstantial evidence, because Mars is red and because of the water channels and everything, you can argue that Mars had a active biosphere in the past. And this guy rejected it, and he says, we don't need we don't need speculation about life on Mars. If anybody's going to prove there was life on Mars, we'll do it with our rovers. Said. Oh yeah, did you say and, acid? Did you say acidic? No, I, I just said. Uh, well, I think he was acidic. Yes, uh, oh, he, he, touche. He was also asinine because he was basically saying, you know, I got my rover contract, and uh, you know, it's got, not going to say uh, Haynes till we say it has, says Haynes. You know. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, they won't test the life on Mars with their rowers, even though it's been 50 years. <laughs> um, that reminds me. I'll let you say this. How many of the rovers have had a radiation measurement device on them? No, no. Well, there was no. one. One. Oh, well, we don't know. And I, am I speaking to the Honorable Dick Hoagland? No, 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 this no, is no. Ron Gerbron. Oh, this, 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 yeah, this is Bob. You sound this, a lot no, like this, no, this is Ron. This is a new person. We haven't been this, introduced. This is Ron, Ron Gerbron. He's, he's our yeah. generalist. Oh, okay, Ron, Ron. Okay, Ron. Yeah. There's only one probe that I think carried a, a sophisticated uh, radiation measuring stuff. And that was, you could tell it was state of the art because it was launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base. Um, not okay. taking it. Yeah. 
wasn't launched from Cape Kennedy because they can't keep high security there. But at Vandenberg, everything is secure because they launched spy satellites. You know, it's mostly military. However, you asked them, why are you launching from Vandenberg? And they said, uh, they said, <laughs> times with Brandenburg, they said, oh, I don't know. We just thought it would be cool to launch it from Vandenberg because uh, uh, the, the Kennedy launch manifest was all full. It, that's, uh, it's that's, actually a uh, lot of work to launch something all the way to Mars from Vandenberg. Oh, so it we, is yeah. because it yeah. it's... Uh, uh, your the Kennedy Space Center, you launch everything, and the Earth's rotation helps you. At yeah. Vandenberg, you have to it's it's meant to launch things into polar orbit, and that means you get you have to have a much bigger rocket, much more money to launch something to Mars from Vandenberg. So they they launched a classified package to Mars. It was the Insight lander, I believe. Oh, insight—the one that landed up by the pole, by the yeah, and that's yes. the one that had the radioactive landed near where all the glass was. Yeah, and of course, radiation from the things I found would be more concentrated. Can I go back to the part about the the life on Mars? Um, sure. There was a, a a gigapan that Keith Laney had when we did the um, presidential briefing video with uh, on discord and we were all showing our stuff and i was looking at that i zoomed in a section up on this hill and i kept zooming in and zooming in and i saw something sticking up from behind this boulder and even though they had sucked all yeah. the green out of the picture this thing was still green <laughs> and the texture of it looked like it was small bubble wrap and i said this looks I, like reptilian skin and and I and, swear, if I could find that that photo, I I'd find that again because well, I want to mention that that presidential briefing is available and it's free now and it's on the page. If anyone wants to look at it, it is there on the page. What's yeah. that one? The, the the one where they say that it's plausible they'll find art alien artifacts on Mars. No, this is this is a project that a group of us did. Oh, about four or five years ago, where we wanted oh, okay. to show people how to look at um, at the photos of um, archaeological structures that have been, you know, deteriorating for millennia, and yes. we had some really fascinating photos in there. So several of us presented our research in it, and it, and that video is available now on the page. Oh, very good, very good. And you know, and any any archaeology you find on Mars is going to be beat up, just like archaeology on Earth is. I mean, if you see pictures of the Sphinx when it was first photographed, mm. it looked pretty pretty rough. For one thing, uh, either the Turks or the or the French, they can't they argue about which ones did it. Shot its nose off with a cannonball, apparently. Mm. Uh, and you know, it, so it was vandalized and beat up by the desert, and all it, all you see is just its neck sticking out of the ground. And and if you look at it uh, from a distance, you can see, oh, it looks like a face in a wearing this headdress, Egyptian 
headdress thing. But if you get up close to it in, in general lighting, it looks like hell. And, mm-hmm. and, and they didn't, they didn't, for a long time, they didn't realize there was a whole body buried underneath <laughs> it. <laughs> I saw drawings of it where it was just covered in sand. And, you know, I really love your idea that the astronauts should be required to actually look at some ancient artifacts here before they go there. Oh, yes. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. I, I, I went to Arches Park in, in Utah, um, and I took one photograph of my wife in the foreground and stuff in the background that caught my attention, like this bust of Nefertiti up on top of this butte and this rectangular pillar that's made etched into the wall with a little stem sticking out, like was a head on it or something. And yeah. that's what caught my attention. But then years later, I see down one level down this object vertical pillar standing on its own little pedestal. And it looks like a, another version of the balanced rock, which looks like it's a head that looks like a fish head entity. And I pointed this out to Jonathan Womack and he finds etched into the wall to the right of that pillar, this bird's head. And I didn't notice that. And I here it is, four out-of-place artifacts in one photograph that I took. And I'm going there saying all this stuff is natural. No, something <laughs> else is going on. And, and the Badlands... Why do you think they sent them all to Antarctica? The, the uh, astronauts have pretty much all been there. Yeah, why would they go to Antarctica? Because there's stuff going well, on there. Well, Mark can speak to that. You know, there's this perfect pyramid down in, exactly. in Antarctica. It's 10 times bigger than the Pyramid of Giza, but it sure looks like a pyramid to me. So Mark, Is it as big and, as the one in Bosnia? No. Yeah, that one's sure. an earth-built earth pyramid, and they're huge. They're, they're, they tend to be covered acres and acres Mark, are you still there? You're with us, right? Uh, I'm still here. Um, the ones in Antarctica aren't real pyramids. They just kind of look that way just by based on camera angle. Um, the Bosnian pyramid is has one very well-formed um, triangular uh, facet to it. Uh, and, I, you know, I think, I think it holds up to the argument that it could have been a pre-existing landform that was altered. But the ones in oh, Antarctica, yeah, that's, that's uh, the way it looks like to me, Ron. Yeah, I think the ones in Antarctica, yeah. it's it's more it's it's um it's uh it's more of a stretch, and that part of Antarctica has, um, unlike other parts, has not been ice free. Um, there are parts of Antarctica that's been ice free, but where those are located uh, has been. Um, covered with ice for millions uh, of years, as far as we know. Ron, please, oh. please mute. Yes, hello? Are you making noise, or someone's making noise? Okay. Someone's making noise. Yeah, there's a I'm lot of stuff. on my microphone. Okay, uh, Robert, Ron. are you still out there? Do you have that picture that I sent you a couple of weeks ago of Antarctica? Um... <clears throat> Oh, the one with the fellow standing in front of the rock, the odd rock. Yeah, uh, yeah, with what looks like two pyramids behind it. Yeah, maybe you could show uh, it to him in the Skype window or something. I don't know. Well, I, I don't have access to it right now, but I would disagree with Mark that the pyramids in Antarctica are uh, weathered landforms because we did. Oh, I say. 
we did extensive studies of uh, the the best photographs of the pyramids, and they're definitely structured. Uh, so I will. They even have the same angles. I I'll respectfully I'll respectfully disagree with that, but I wanted to ask. Yeah, John, I'd be open to take a look at that study. I because I, I I haven't seen it that I. That's cool. I, I yeah, well, I, I will send it to you because I was able to label. We did really extensive things on it, uh, and I was able to label a really solid geometry and uh, blocks that look like entrances and uh, uh, causeways, all kinds of things like that. And I actually found some a video, a video of the films taken by Admiral Byrd flying oh, over very rapidly. And uh, he captured some pyramids that looked like they were collapsed and, uh, in 1947. And you had to freeze the frame uh, as he was flying by at about 120 miles an hour. So you really had to spend a lot of time with it. And perhaps we can uh, have a discussion on that a lot of, uh, uh, later. We're coming to the break, but I want to ask John Brandenburg about plasma uh, in, in the yeah. next hour. Okay? I'd like to have, have a few very important questions about plasma. Yeah, very good, very good. It's, uh, one of my one of my areas of expertise besides Mars is, is primarily plasma. Is what yeah, I do. well, I definitely have a lot of questions about plasma and videos, that, films that I've seen, secret films from Russia of UFOs that appear to be made of plasma that seem to be intelligent. They break up, they separate, they go off flying, and then they come back, unite, and fly away. And we've heard a lot of descriptions of such phenomena. And of course, there's ectoplasma, which is um, an experience that I've had several sure. real ghost encounters, and I've actually been touched by ghosts. And I have some questions about that and about something that I call black plasma. So in the next hour, I hope to get some answers. Sure, from we'll, you, we'll, we'll talk plasma. Okay. All right. We're 60 seconds out from the top of the hour, and I've got to be on time for that. So you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, our guests are uh, John Brandenburg and Dr. Mark Carlotto. And we're going to be coming back in a second. We're going to pick up with this because it's getting kind of interesting. Stick with us. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because 
Without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>